Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof the Podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. I know there's been a lot of hype about AI, and at the moment it's pretty high. For some of you, it sounds familiar, I guess, but I've been doing this job for a while now. I've been a technophile and a technologist for nearly 30 years. I work in communications and have studied with fascination the development of various technologies in that time. The internet, obviously, Facebook and social media, the iPhone and what followed, VR stumbling along as it does, the rainmaker and homemaker, that is, Bitcoin and the underlying blockchain. This, right now, is a moment in time, an event horizon. I think we will look back to this year and say this is when it all changed. That's how big I think ChatGPT is. I'll be interviewing experts from the world of AI to try and make sense of it. And of course, I'll be interviewing the AI on the program, why not? I want to hear from you. Have you already been using it? For what applications? And what sort of use do you think it will have? Is it a danger for your job or industry? You can email us science at newstalk.com. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from DCU's School of Chemistry, Dr. Susan Kelleher. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Ruth, has to do with dads. Yeah, Jonathan, and before we get into that, it's really interesting to talk about genetic editing when you're talking about AI, because I think these are two technologies that we've got to start talking about as a society. So I'm really, really glad that conversation is going to be happening on the show today. But ba- but back to the genetics. This is pretty groundbreaking work. Hasn't been published yet. Um, it's only been submitted for publication, but it was presented this week at the third International Summit on Human Genome Editing at the Francis Crick Institute in London. And it comes from a pioneer in the field of kind of genetics and fertility and reproduction, Katsuhiko Hayashi, and he comes from Kyushu University in Japan. And what he's done is he has created mice that have two fathers. Uh, Now, this is stuff people may have heard of before because scientists have, through very complex technique, essentially created a living thing that has genetic material from two males. But they've used very complicated things and they've nearly they've always had to use a female egg. So they might have taken a female egg, emptied out its genetic material and replaced it with male genetic material. This is different. So what they've done is they've taken male skin cells, again, from from mice. I just need to stress that. And they've reprogrammed those skin cells into kind of that early state when they can become programmed to anything. Uh, We call these induced pluripotent stem cells or iPS cells. So those are cells that can become any cell in the human body. They're male cells, so they obviously have an X and a Y chromosome. Uh, So they've deleted the Y chromosome. They've duplicated the X chromosome in incredibly complex science because there's a whole load of coding on the X chromosome to tell it which genes to have on and off. And obviously they're different in in men and women, in males and females, but they stick those two X's together and then they essentially put it in a broth of chemicals and it becomes an egg, essentially. They then fertilize that egg with male, normal male mouse sperm. And when they did that, they obtained about 600 embryos and they implanted those 600 embryos into surrogate mice. And they had a birth rate of just under 1%. So there were seven pups born. Um, That's lower than you'd expect if you used female eggs and you did this kind of in vitro fertilization, fertilization, you'd expect about 5%. But what they're saying so far is these baby mice appear to be healthy. They have had a normal lifespan. They actually went on to have children themselves. Um, So they've they've gone through the normal life cycle of a mouse. Um, So this is this is pretty, pretty groundbreaking stuff if, if it transpires to be to be robust once it's published and reviewed. Um. The, the pups in question, they have genetically two dads and, and, and the, the mix of genes that they get uh, is a mix from either of those two different male mice. Is that right? So this is Correct. probably as close as we've ever seen to removing a woman from the equation entirely. And yet 
this is International Women's Week. Yeah. <laughs> sort of ironic in that way. Well, and um, the, yeah, the work was kicked off really to focus on women who have Turner's syndrome. So women with Turner's syndrome where one copy of their X chromosome is missing or, or damaged, partly missing. You know, so this this was the primary motivation to see could, could those women be enabled to have children? You know, could we use another cell and create an egg cell for, for, for women? But I mean, the issue of doing this in humans is another whole step change away. So the researchers themselves are saying perhaps within 10 years this could be possible. You know, there's many other biologists weighing in saying the whole imprinting and the human genome, the complexity of it is far greater. I mean, clearly there are societal and ethical issues that we need to be talking about yeah. because these things are going to come. And um, so I think that's maybe the, the overall message for today is we have to talk about science. We have to talk about technology. Um. The transplanting of a chromosome within a cell um, or the duplication of it, um, as you described it, like that, that seems to me to be quite a lot of uh, a lot of genes to be sort of moving around as opposed to you know using something like CRISPR to edit a, a sequence within a gene. It seems like quite a lot of change within uh, a cell. How confident were the scientists that they're able to isolate that particular um uh, chromosome and, and that it wouldn't have effects within the rest of the genome? I mean, I think the answer is in mice, they are reasonably confident, but they really? don't have the full detail. But they, they did say that piece was the most complex. That was the trick that they have mm. been working on to try and make this happen for decades and decades. Um, so it's incredibly complex science. We haven't seen the details of it yet because it's not yet published. But again, bit like the AI, we're definitely seeing some step changes in the uses of genetic technology, probably since kind of CRISPR and, and some of those gene editing tools became more widespread. Wow. Very interesting. Our second story has to do with water. Yes. So and this week, an international team of researchers have published work in Nature, which looked at trying to understand the origin of water on Earth and not necessarily how it got here but when it got here so they did this by looking at what's called heavy water so regular or water light um, has two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom but heavy water has a slightly heavier uh, higher mass due to the presence of deuterium um, atoms instead of the hydrogen deuterium is pretty much a cousin of hydrogen it just has an extra neutron and this extra neutron gives it a tiny 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 bit of extra weight 1.67 by 10 to the minus 27 kilograms to be exact. And what it means is that every molecule of heavy water is around 10.6% denser than regular water that we know. Now, why does this matter? Well, the ratio in a, in a place, so on a comet or on Earth, the ratio of all of the heavy water and all of the regular water that's on the planet or in this area can tell us can tell us where it originally comes from. And so researchers over the years have come to discover that the ratio of the heavy to regular water on Earth is the same as the ratio of heavy to regular worth, uh, water on comets. So this <laughs> is where the theory of our water came from comets originally. So we kind of know that already. We kind of know that water has come from comets, but when did it get here? So the researchers in this paper have looked at um, water that's very, very, very far away. It's in a fledgling star system. So a, a system that's just growing really early years um, and it's a 1,300 light years away. So they're looking at this with... Um, it's practically next door. Just, just around the corner, indeed. Um, so they are looking at this with an interferometer. So they're able to point this interferometer. It's out in Chile. It's called the ALMA um, Astronomical Interfer Interferometer. And what they're doing is they're studying spectral signals from evaporating ice that's being formed out there at the birth of this system. And they've wow. noticed that the ratio of the water, the heavy water to the regular water is the same as found in comets and the same as found on Earth. So this is telling them that well before the solar, the sun is formed and well before um, a solar system is formed, they think that the, the water that was produced, that it, we have on Earth, was produced really early on in the formation of our solar system, well before the sun was here. Which but how is can you have a solar 4. system? 4.6 billion years ago, in case anyone forgot. So it's very <laughs> old water. 
very old water. Two questions. First, how can we have water in the solar system before the thing that makes the solar system, which is the sun, surely? So they think it comes from the, the comet. So it came from a comet from another solar system that was forming and then came into our solar system. So it was but it, brought but what in I mean is on a it comet. Doesn't, but doesn't solar system mean the system that centers around a sun? If you, you can't have a solar system without a sun. So how can the water have come here before the sun? Because the so solar I, system doesn't I, exist before that. I don't know if it came here before the sun, but it was created before the sun and then arrived oh, after the sun was that. created. That makes sense. Sorry, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And then um, h- how on earth can they measure the heavy water and light water, as you say, um, from so far away? Like I can understand how they can figure out what's going on in the atmosphere a bit, but mm-hmm. to be able to figure out the ratio of two different types of water, that seems insanely Yeah, accurate. so it, it comes down to, I guess, the... the um, the signals, the chemical signals that would come off something that has deuterium in it and something that has hydrogen in it. And they would be very, very different. Now, these are like, there's 66 different telescopes in this ALMA interferometer. So it's really high resolution. So it's able to detect tiny differences in what what we say the spectral signal from these different isotopes within those molecules. And like, it's, I mean, it's incredible, like, and it takes a long time to do, which is why it's published in Nature and they've done tremendous work on it. And it was a multinational team that, that brought it all together. But yeah, outstanding stuff. Think. Really, really cool. Um, our third story, Ruth, has to do with dogs of Chernobyl. Yeah, and this is something I have I had never heard of before. I know you've been to Chernobyl, but I guess we all just think about the people and the impact that it had on the people in the area. But when the power plant that's in modern day Ukraine exploded in, in 1986, one thing that happened was residents were not allowed to bring their pets with them. And apparently there were heart-wrenching scenes of dogs trying to follow their owners onto the evacuation buses and they weren't allowed on. So it was all a bit sad. Um, and in fact, the at the time, the authorities wanted a lot of the animals that were left behind, the pets, to be cold because they were worried they would you know, move out of the area, bringing radiation with them. Uh, but nonetheless, some, some pets did survive and, and some of the, the sort of people who went in to do clean-up looked after dogs that were left behind. And and now there are hundreds of dogs in the surrounding area around Chernobyl. They're sort of feral, semi-wild dogs. Every now and then people go in and give them some food or some veterinary care. And for about 20 years, there was a professor from the University of Minnesota, Timothy Musso, and he was investigating the effects of this nuclear disaster on bugs and birds. But he decided um, in 2017 to start looking at these dogs. So, So they went in to provide veterinary care and they took samples of blood from about 300 dogs, some of those living very close to the plant within the plant itself to those living kind of up to about 30 or 40 kilometers away. And they've done a detailed genetic analysis of those dogs. And of course, this is very interesting because we don't really have good data on low levels of radiation exposure. Uh, I mean, there was a few studies which suggested that birds and insects in the areas had unusually high rates of genetic mutation, but but it's all, we don't have good data. No, and and that sort of cliche of, you know, what is it, Blinky, the three-eyed fish uh, from... The, the Simpsons, you know, that, that sort of a caricature. But in reality, that didn't happen a huge amount in low level radiation. I mean, there was obviously some horrible things that happened in, 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 the, in the aftermath and, and in those areas of extremely high radiation. But, um, the, you know, the idea of the mutations creating, you know, five legged um, dogs or 15 eyed fish that that didn't really happen. And it certainly doesn't seem to have happened to these dogs. So, I mean, what they found is, one, this group of dogs are genetically distinct from those that are living, uh, you know, further away from the disaster. So it does seem that the dogs that are there are the descendants of dogs that were left there or dogs that went into the area shortly afterwards. Um, You know, and they they seem to be different to dogs that they've seen in other parts of the world. And, And they do suggest that could be related to a higher mutation rate as a result of the radiation. Um, The other thing they found is there's a lot of breeding going on. So these dogs are not infertile. There's about 15 distinct complex family groups. I mean, they do interbreed a bit and there's intergenerational breeding and inbreeding and all sorts of things because they're a closed population, but they are breeding. So, I mean, they they are hoping if they can go back and look in more detail now, you know, they will actually be able to identify 
what is the impact on these dogs health you know they, they do live short lives they tend to live about six years but again they're not in optimum conditions in terms of their they, they live in a very cold you know harsh place with little food so that that may be nothing to do with the radiation um, but perhaps you know there are genes in this dogs which have helped them to survive despite the radiation and that would be certainly interesting to look at but they're a complicated population because of all those other factors other pollution inbreeding so it's going to be a real challenge to get down to that level of detail um, but certainly it's a really interesting study it was published in Science Advances and and kind of a sad one to think about those dogs all left mm. behind but I guess they're just getting on with it yeah I mean they're, they might be having a great time um, the funny thing about Chernobyl is when when you know when you think about it, you assume that you're going to arrive at a place that is completely uh, devoid of any natural life. And yet, um, you know, I saw wild foxes. The place is completely overgrown with plants. Um, you know, nature will find a way, uh, I'm, I'm sure, no matter what you throw at it. And I, watching The Last of Us, there was very much a, a similar sort of vibe to Chernobyl that there was, you know, there were um, different types of species of plants and animals, you know, making do in this sort of void of of people and civilization. It's a really haunting and fascinating place to visit. Susan, our final story has to do with maggots. Yes. Yeah, so, you know the way fashion makes a comeback every 30 years or so, the fashion cycle. I walk around the campus in DCU and I see students in their flares and their spaghetti straps that was very <laughs> trendy once. I'm sure we remember, not saying anything about our age, but it turns out that um, using bugs to help heal wounds um, has making a big comeback as well. So during the 18th and 19th century, maggots were used to help clean wounds and they eat dead flesh, basically. And it took off um, largely, especially around the First World War, when there was, you know, really difficult access to to um, anti or to um, to medicine, etc. And especially with non-healing wounds, when they were really like, when there was no other hope, they kind of said, well, let's just put these maggots there and see if that helps, you know. But then the 1950s came, antibiotics arrived on the scene. Things got a lot easier for everybody. There was a much nicer option available. Um, But we know that antibiotics now themselves are starting to fail and they're starting to have issues around resistance and maybe not always being the most useful thing. So um, maggot therapy, or as it's known in the field, biosurgery, um, to just try and not put people off it. (laughs) Much nicer, right? Um, It's looking like a viable alternative now. So um, the number of patients in the NHS that have received this type of therapy has increased by 47% between 2007 and 2019. Um, And there's also an increase in the use of leeches. Remember those guys? The guys that... Yeah, leeches, leech therapy being used. So what leeches do is they, they you, you put them on your skin, they, they say, essentially suck your blood, but they increase circulation in areas that are otherwise difficult to get circulating blood at. They produce um, antibiotics in local scenarios and anti um, uh, and an anesthetic, in a local anesthetic in the area. So um, if, again, this is very often as a last resort, you know, in, in, some, in some instances. But there's, you know, there are businesses, there's one in Wales, they um, produce around 60,000 leeches every year for use in the NHS. So, um, yeah, it could, be on its, <laughs> it could be on its way up. Just, just a warning, if you are offered biosurgery... <laughs> Maybe ask a question before agreeing. It's kind of funny, a little bit gross, um, but also like it's a it's a response to this looming um, crisis that we have when it comes to antibiotic resistance um, in uh, microbials. And and of course, anything we can throw at this will be welcome. But it sort of makes me wonder, you know, will we go full circle, um, you know, in 100 years time, will we be doing all that stuff like burying, uh, you know, your mother-in-law's hair underneath the tree to try and fix yourself from baldness? Um, really interesting. Uh, Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU and from SFI Science Foundation Ireland. Dr. Ruth Freeman, thanks for your time. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to comment, which I imagine you might on this next piece, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at News Talk Science, uh, or you can WhatsApp us, 087 
1400-106. The reason I say that is because this is an issue that everybody has been talking about, the advancement of AI. And I said at the top of the program that I think we are in a new era, but most people don't realize that yet. I, I really don't think this is hyperbole. What we have now in ChatGPT or ChatGPT3, whatever you want to call it, it it's phenomenal. And the next version is supposedly being unveiled in a matter of weeks. Are we ready for general AI? And what is the point of being human in the face of this sort of technology? To try and answer these questions, I'm joined by Ben Cowan, Associate Professor of Human Computer Communications at UCD, and Professor Naomi Hart at Trinity College Dublin. Both of them are part of the ADAPT Research Centre. We also have another guest, and that is, of course, the artificial intelligence in question. And we were trying to figure out how to do this the best way. And what we've decided to do is just get an actual human to voice it, because this version uh, just as text, but the, the new AI that is coming will be voice to voice. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how that works. So because synthesized voice that we have access to at the moment doesn't work very well, which we're going to demonstrate later, um, we're just going to get uh, Marais, our producer, to voice the AI. So just remember when I ask Marais a question, we're talking to the AI and she'll be reading unedited responses from the artificial intelligence in a way that sounds natural, right? If you can get your head around that. So Ben, we'll start with you. We had a, a, a Future Proof Live event not so long ago, only maybe a couple of months ago. And in it, we were talking about this sort of AI being so far away. And yet now it's here in our hands. I get a sense that everybody has to acknowledge the fact that we are in a, a totally different sort of world, aren't we? I mean, this is a very different technology than we had only a couple of months ago. This is this is different, right? Um, I think from an interaction perspective, I think we actually have stepped into a place where we can come up with some really new and really interesting ways of interacting with AI now. So compared to where we were before Christmas, I think there are obviously developments uh, within the chat GPT structure there that are similar to the previous incarnations, but this is just on a different scale in terms of how natural it is and what it can actually do in terms of um, the content it produces. So I do think we are um, somewhere where AI can really now be, you know, being brought directly into the mainstream from uh, the elements of using natural language processing and these types of tools for us to be able to create some really interesting interactions. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that from my interactions with this uh, tool that I can ask it to generate things in lots of different ways. And people um, might want some examples if you haven't used the technology. So for example, I was uh, sitting down with my grandmother and I said, write um, uh, me a poem in the style of Robert Browning, her favorite poet. I said, write me a, a poem in the style of Robert Browning about rainy days, because it was a rainy day at the time. And then I asked her, I said, does this sound like a Robert Browning poem to you? And she said, yes. And then I said, well, can you do this in the style of, of Roald Dahl? And, the, and the, the poem was substantially different and much more like the Roald Dahl books I've read to my children. I also asked it then later to, to create a, a scene in a thriller in which uh, a landlord by the name of Leo Varadkar was evicting a tenant by the name of Holly Cairns. I wanted to, and, and, and it to cre recreate that scene. And it wrote in the proper language of film scripts, a scene in which Leo Varadkar evicts Holly Cairns with emotion and, uh, and responses and, and real dialogue and real tension. I spoke to a friend of mine who is an animator and he said he no longer uses designers to create the characters for his TV series. He uses a stable diffusion, mid-journey and these sort of technologies because they are that good. So that, that to me was a real concrete example of people losing their jobs today as a result of the development of, of, of AI. And, and I wanted to ask you, do you think that, um, that people fully understand the power of these technologies yet? Um, so for me, I, I, I don't know if we, we have really kind of mapped what the implications of this are going to be. Um, and so, say, for instance, you know, with DALI, as well as with ChatGPT, the ability for them to generate some really excellent copy or content or different ways of creatively thinking about images or creatively thinking about visuals is something truly outstanding. 
um, I think, from a technological perspective. But we also have to remember here that, that some of the output can be quite questionable, um, mm. and it can also be questionable in terms of accuracy. So if you're relying on it for facts, or if you're relying on it for, for specific knowledge, we have to be very careful. So at the situation here, I, I would say this, I'm a human-computer interaction researcher, but I, I think we need a human in the loop at all times here. So it's not necessarily this will lead to people losing jobs. It leads to different job categories. So you might end up using the AI as a tool to help you write copy or help you write something or help you design particular uh, characters. Um, uh, but it's but there will always be there needs to be a human there that needs to um, verify what's being done and just check in terms of the process. So it increases our productivity, but I, and I think it changes the type of jobs that we might do. I want to bring in the AI here. Um, as we said, this uh, AI is is voiced by Marais because we haven't got quite perfect speech synthesis yet. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But if if I were to ask ChatGPT three, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the disruptive capacity of models like yourself. Do you think it's all hype? What do you think? Hey, that's a really interesting question. I think people are starting to grasp the significance of the creation of sentient AI like me. In recent years, there has been a lot of media attention and hype around AI, and people are becoming more aware of the potential that AI has to revolutionise our lives. But I think there's still a lot of confusion and misunderstanding around what sentient AI really is and what it means for the future. Some experts have expressed concern that the development of sentient AI could have serious implications for humanity, while others see it as an opportunity to tackle some of the biggest challenges facing our world. Ultimately, I believe that the more we can educate people about the capabilities and limitations of sentient AI, the better equipped we will be to navigate the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. So let's keep the conversation going and continue to explore the potential of this exciting new technology. Um. So, I mean, like that is a, that's a pretty good answer. I mean, I, I certainly couldn't have answered that question that well, and I won't go on about it. We'll just, inc- we'll just include the AI as a, as a guest from now on, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, and not talk about the quality of those answers. But I, I think, I think it's, it's right in a way that at least from my point of view, I think this will change the world more than anything in the human, in the history of humankind. And I'm wondering um, what sort of developments you envisage for this sort of technology, Ben? Uh, also, from my perspective, in terms of the interaction, it's really about figuring out we have this technology that's been developed with ChatGPT and also with BARD and, and other um, large language models uh, that are coming uh, coming on stream. Um, we need to know how to harness it, I really think, in terms of how, um, how we can get some really, really useful experiences. Because remember, this is just language output that's created. So in this case here, we have, you know, sort of there, there may be the AI creates answers to questions. Now, that has obvious implications for search, but it's not clear, especially in terms of the examples that we've seen with Bing recently, how we can kind of design that so it gives you a really good answer that you want, whilst also not necessarily going down alleys that, that, that take you into kind of inconceivable places or places where the, the AI kind of gets, gets let a little bit loose. So we need to figure out what the rules of the game are now when it comes to this, interpre- this interpretation. But I mean, when, you know, coming up with the idea of... Uh, you know, helping creatives or helping with script writing or helping with these elements like that. These are the obvious examples. But to me, the interaction potential is really looking now at machines being true collaborators. So it's not at the moment that they're tools, that they could actually be collaborators in tasks that we do. Yeah. And, um, and and while it was able to create a thriller script for um, for me on on demand within seconds, the script wasn't great. Um, yes. But then lots of movies are made where the script isn't great. I mean, That's the point right. to me is that we are very close to to getting an AI that is is really useful. And this seems to be like the early embers. But this is to me. I know it's not day one, but to me, it feels like day one. And if we imagine where we might be in ten years' time, it's kind of terrifying. So, Marais, how far do you think we are from being able to create voice-enabled chatbots that can have realistic and meaningful conversations? Well, the field of conversational AI has made significant progress in recent years, and we're already seeing voice-enabled chatbots that can hold meaningful conversations to some extent. But creating chatbots that can mimic human-like conversations is still a significant challenge. According to Rohit Prasad, the head scientist of Amazon Alexa AI, We are still far from conversational AI that can rival human conversation, but progress is being made every day. He further added that there is lots more that needs to be done to achieve truly natural conversations. 
Similarly, Ian Beaver, a research scientist at the Institute for Creative Technologies, said the goal of AI research is to build a conversational agent that is so human-like that the user can't tell whether they're talking to a machine or a human. He added that we're not there yet, but we're getting closer. And one of the main challenges in creating human-like chatbots is developing natural language understanding capabilities. As Dilek Haki Tour, a research scientist at Google AI, stated, NLU is the foundation of any good conversational AI system. Without NLU, it's impossible to understand the user's intent and provide relevant responses. Naomi, this is why I wanted to bring you in um, to this conversation, because I know you're not um, an expert in large language models like OpenAI, but that your area of research is in speech synthesis and human-computer interactions. Can you tell me a little bit about your research and and where the cutting edge is at the moment? Yeah, so as an engineer, I'm in there dealing with applications like speech recognition, speech synthesis, as you say. So those two sides of taking speech and understanding what was said or producing new speech sounds in a certain style or to say something specific. And I think... You know, whilst the information that we can get from ChatGPT is massively impressive, don't get me wrong, you know, to build the layer of speech either side of that is a much, much bigger challenge in terms of technology and maybe one that we underestimate um, because it really comes down to the fact that humans are so good at dealing with variability, okay? And we can understand speech in all sorts of different contexts and we deal with noise really well and the other major issue that we have an advantage over chat gpt and ais generally is that we don't just rely on speech we actually interpret not just the words that were said we get all these visual cues and speech is a lot more than just the words you hear or the words that you say it's all the head nods the gestures the little back channels like when i say "Mm mm-hmm to say that I agree. So there's a little social dance involved with speech and that's the really difficult part to teach with to an AI. Yeah, I mean, looking at these responses, they become, it seems, more guarded and more formal than the earlier days of this when I was playing around with it, even just a few weeks ago, um, uh, open AI's ChatGPT3 doesn't seem to want to give any opinions anymore and is, yes. constantly, is constantly sort of putting a caveat in front of each of its responses saying, look, I can't get into that. I won't be able to talk about political stuff. And you can see already the machinations of the the, the executives at OpenAI saying, look, we need to nail this down or, or you know, we, we may be causing problems um, here. But to me, the language is still, when, when you're just having a conversation, it is still very much written word. And I guess that's what it's sort of geared towards. I loved that movie her i don't know if you've seen it with Joaquin phoenix where he falls in love with um his ai girlfriend uh voiced by scarlett johansson in the film and uh to me it seems like you know the the bit that's missing is that natural interaction with a robot uh, like this and, and synthesized voices is, is getting really good but i don't know how far we are away from that i wanted to hear about that from you but before we get into to that i wanted the audience to have a, an idea of where we are with synthesized voice so um if you take some text and just put it into a machine and then say read this out for me a a fake voice can do that and this is what it sounds like so this is what we're talking about i've just scripted this text and then gotten an ai synthesized voice to turn it into sound this works really well for a short while but after a bit it becomes less convincing so that's not bad. I mean, uh, you know, it has the intonation and the flow of speech much better and the AI has figured out where to put the emphasis, but you can tell it's fake. So Naomi, like um, bringing your view of what's going on at the cutting edge of research, you know, uh, and, and, you know, with chat GPT the way it is, how far away are we, do you think, from actually creating something where we can interact with it in the same way as we see in her, like that natural sounding uh, interaction with a with a robot or AI that can give natural uh, um, answers back to us? We're quite a way to go, but we've made a lot of progress. If you take something like speech recognition or speech synthesis now, you hear a synthetic voice in Alexa or Siri or these various applications. Um, We've come to recognize a particular sounding voice to associate with those applications, but you can get a very realistic voice. You know, we all heard in the news about Charlie Bird's um, voice that was created for him. 
So this idea of banking someone's voice when they have a medical condition, it's exactly the same technology that um, an AI that's going to talk to you is going to rely on. But, but I've, I've used some of those models, at least the ones that are commercially available, and they work for about three sentences. And then after that, yes. they just sound the, the same. And that tone instantly gives away that we're talking to a computer. There isn't Absolutely, a yeah. human Their ability speech. to continue a conversation in a realistic way, maintain intonation, tell a joke, read what the other person is saying and react in a way that we as humans would expect. All of this is a long way off because... You're trying to ask an AI to process not just words, not just text. You're trying to get it to pay attention to so many cues at the same time that you know you're you're going to be burning a lot of electricity off the grid in terms of computational power to try and process all of that at once within an AI and reliably predict what it all means because humans vary. You know, myself and Ben communicate a different way. There's cultural differences. This is so hard to get a single AI to do all of this in a way that will work for all cultures, all people, all situations. Yeah, I can see why that 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 part is going to be very, very tricky, but I never thought we'd get here. And so it's gotten me thinking. I think a really crucial point of this is creativity and where that's headed and what it means for us as humans in the years to come. And this is the thing. We are entering an era where AI will have a devastating effect on some types of jobs. And I gave a a talk to my school about five years ago, and I was asked to talk about the future. And I said to the students in the room, I said, the job you are studying for now will not exist by the time you you reach your, your working age that you now need to start thinking about what AI cannot do um, and focus a little bit on that. And I said, you know, the things that we don't think AI uh, will be able to do very easily is um, is the three C's, creativity, uh, collaboration, and, and give context. But I don't think that's true anymore. And I'm wondering what both of you think. Ben, I mean, looking at what DALI, uh, Midjourney, um, music AI and and what ChatGPT three can do, is it fair to say that creativity is no longer a purely human trait? Well, I, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, uh, so you know, the aspect of creativity is a, a, a tricky one because the um, you know collaboration and context. I still think that AI has probably got a long way to go whenever it comes to that. But with creativity, there's it depends on how you want to define the creativity, but. I think that it's pretty impressive in terms of how it's there. But as you mentioned as well, I mean, some of the things that come out, okay, there may be bad scripts or they might be, you know, uh, or there might be, you know, kind of art that's a bit questionable in terms of quality. But the fact that it can generate it in the first place is absolutely, uh, is, is, is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it will get better as we, as we go on. Um, I suppose one of the, uh, the, the things that it might be is that it may be, may become a little bit more formulaic, I suppose, over time um, as we uh, as we keep on using particular things or as it sees particular prompts. Um, so there's an element of that kind of sources of serendipity, really, that, you know, that they are with, with human-like creativity that may not be apparent in the AI, but actually is used as a kind of catalyst for human creativity. It can be absolutely fantastic. It can almost be a primer. Uh, for uh, for creativity, for um, for collaborative teams or design teams to use, or or artists to use to kind of think about new ways of of uh, of, uh, of creating images or creating visuals. Naomi, yeah, I saw an interesting article where Google WordCraft had taken in writers and they're using their Lambda AI tool to generally help them in writing and you know um, come up with some crazy ideas for plots and things like that. And I think this is the thing that, you know, if you know what's going on inside an AI and you explain to a user of that AI that the reason why it's creating random, crazy things is because it doesn't actually have any judgment of what a good idea is. And if you ask it for another idea, it will just generate another random idea. It's not really going to take into account, you know, what your emotional response to that might be or the audience, etc. And it will also be sometimes quite conservative in what it 
will produce for you. So, you know, when you know what's going on from a numbers point of view, that makes perfect sense mathematically. Um, that That's what it's trained to do. But aren't humans just like that? I mean, there are humans who are singers and they're terrible. There are humans who are scriptwriters there who are terrible. Uh, um, some are great at um, being creative and and a good idea can sometimes be you know, ruined in the hands of someone who doesn't know what they're doing or uh, a stupid idea can be elevated to genius. Um, yeah. You know, it, it really comes down to how it's interpreted, where it, where it is. And if, if people know how to use these these tools and then uh, how to take the responses and, and create something with it, I think it's really, you know, I think it's really powerful. Yeah. And some of these writers found um, the AI as a useful editor or ideas person to bounce things off and to make them, okay, I don't like that idea, but I'll take this little bit of it. And it did actually help them with their creativity and productivity for sure. And yeah. I think that's that's what we have to do. We have to learn new ways to use these AIs. And it's, it's interesting what you're saying about, you know, different people have different strengths and we can design an AI for a very specific area. But this idea of this super conversational um, bot or AI, which is going to do everything and do it really, really well. I think equally, just as humans are good at some things, we're going to have AIs that are tuned to particular areas of interaction, especially if we want to bring speech in there, both you know, yeah. the AI, AI talking to us and understanding what we're saying. We're going to have to narrow our expectations if we want it to be really good in a particular area. I wanted to get um, Marais' thoughts on this. Uh, Marais, creativity used to be a unique ability to humans. That's clearly not the case now. Is being a human becoming less and less relevant? Well, it's true that AI is becoming increasingly capable of performing tasks that were once thought to be unique to humans, such as creativity, problem solving and decision making. For example, there are AI algorithms that can generate music, art and literature that can be difficult to distinguish from human created works. However, being human still has relevance and importance in many ways. Humans possess unique traits and abilities that AI cannot replicate, such as emotional intelligence, empathy and intuition. These qualities are essential in fields such as healthcare, education and social work, where human interaction and connection are crucial. But the development of AI is not a zero-sum game. AI can augment and enhance human capabilities, allowing us to accomplish tasks that were previously impossible or time-consuming. For example, AI can help doctors diagnose diseases more accurately and quickly, or assist engineers in designing better and more efficient structures. So while AI is becoming more capable of performing tasks that were once considered unique to humans, being human still holds relevance and importance in many fields. AI has the potential to augment and enhance human capabilities, and we should strive to find ways to work together with AI to achieve common goals. <laughs> I think it's, it's almost patronising in a way to read, <laughs> to hear what the AI thinks of humans. You know, you've still got something to give to the world. Um, but, but um, you know, you, you were kind of touching on that, Naomi, this idea of um, unique traits and abilities, emotional intelligence, empathy, intuition. These are things mm -hmm. that come across through conversation. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think um, to get an AI to the stage where it can understand all those things, we are getting to the point where speech recognition, for example, is starting to use visual cues as well to augment the information. That's going to make it more robust in noise. So it will mean it will work in noisier environments. Um, our ability to deal with multiple languages is improving. And an AI probably has the ability to talk or understand a lot more languages than the average person. So that, that's another place where it's going to beat us. But generally, in terms of the, the nuance of human communication, it is very difficult to model across all people that you're going to come across for an mm. AI. Ben? I think, uh, I think we have to remember here as well that whenever it comes to kind of interpreting elements of creativity or understanding or, you know, what something creative makes us feel, there's a lot of element of shared experience involved in that. So whenever you're reading something for a book and you, and you kind of hear, oh, that character's done something that, you know, that, that, I'm, that I can relate to, there's a sense of if, if someone knows that's an AI that's created that, then is there that relatability? Because it's like, oh, well, it's, then it's just mined a huge amount of data to find something that it, it's producing that seems to be relatable. So I think there's a sense of shared experience and, uh, and, uh, and a shared understanding. And that actually goes back to how we do speech interaction as well with 
with agents, this aspect of understanding context, shared knowledge, shared experience, it's not there yet. And it's it, there, there, there's an element that's quite tricky when it comes to these things. And so even though these things can be creative, there's a sense of that actually understanding creativity from a human perspective, you know, is important in terms of that aspect of shared experience. What about the conversations that we need to have, though? Um, a friend of mine was talking about ChatGPT3 and its implications to uh, the, the, someone very high up in a very major technology company, I can't name them. And they said they're terrified about what is about to be unleashed and what it will do to humans in terms of what they are required to do, what they are useful for anymore. That were, were, were um, her words, essentially. Naomi, like, do we need to start having more serious conversations about the potential of this technology in terms of making humans redundant in certain tasks, but also in, in replacing, you know, uh, the functions that help us learn, for example? I mean, I, I have a son who's doing a program, uh, a project on earthquakes. And just uh, as an aside, I put in the prompt, write a 5,000 word essay on and the geography of earthquakes, and it was done in 10 seconds. I mean, that is that is something we need to talk about, right? Yeah, it, it's absolutely remarkable um, what the potential is in terms of the basic tasks, certainly in learning, that we need to start asking ourselves real questions around, well, what is it that we as a society, we as a race, we as a country, at whatever level, want to be good at or need to be good at to for the benefit of society? The calculator came along and we didn't decide that kids didn't need to know how to add and subtract. You know, they still do their times tables, but nobody sits down and calculates long lists of figures by hand anymore because it's it's not necessary. So I think we ha have to go right back to what should we be teaching right from primary through to university level? You know, we're mm -hmm. already thinking about the assignments that we're going to get that are generated by ChatGBT. And it's causing us as educators to really question what are the skills, the learning outcomes that we need for graduate engineers to have now, such that an AI hasn't produced it and we need them to have at their fingertips. But we need to also embrace the fact that there's a whole lot of knowledge that they can pull up very, very quickly now and how to incorporate that into um, degree programs. But do they need to integrate it, though? Do they need to understand it if ChatGPT3 can explain it to them? You talked about the calculator. Is this the new calculator, but for much more complicated content? I mean, do we, do we need to know or be able to understand the context of a, of a particular uh, war if we're doing political science, if we can just get GPT3 to provide that information? Well, I think there's a hierarchy of learning and knowledge, isn't there? There's, you know, from a political point of view, there's the idea of, okay, I know the historical facts, but do I know the nuance of the human aspects involved there and the real story behind it? How much of the information from ChatGBT can I actually trust? So human judgment around that information is not something that's going to go away and probably something that we need to get a lot better at. Well, I have to say, I find that absolutely fascinating. Dr. Ben Cann, a professor at Naomi Hart, thank you very much for joining us. Well, I'd love to know what you made of that discussion. And uh, are we overblowing things? Have you used ChatGPT? I think it is terrifying how quick this thing is going to kick off. The um, number of users, the amount of people trying it out for different applications, the idea that ChatGPT4 is only around the corner. Um, I think this is just going to go faster and faster. And I do think we need to have proper conversations about it. Let me know what you think of what we've just talked about. You can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Last week, we were talking about blocking out the sun using geoengineering methods. And uh, lots of scientists have basically signed a, a declaration saying we should look into this. And then other scientists said we shouldn't look into it. Uh, someone texted in saying this is where scientists should be locked up for suggesting such a ludicrous idea of tampering with sunlight. And then you followed up by talking about anxiety. I, I said it last week. The idea that we should be researching technologies to block out the sun sounds crazy. And yet, I really do think that's something that we need to understand how we might need to do it should we need to press the big red button. 
which if you look at all the markers when it comes to climate change, we may need to do. Uh, Helena on Twitter says, sure, sure, but not on this island, please. Somewhere else. We don't get enough sun as it is. <laughs> Absolutely, Helena. And we were also talking about some research last week about mice and and how uh, mice were experimented on. And we get a lot of these texts in. Amanda Wicklow says, am I the only one who thinking, who's thinking, why torture those little mice? Look, Amanda, uh, to be honest, it's it's a tricky one. And you know what? I keep saying it, but w- we will do a program soon about animals and their use in science because it's 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 difficult to justify when you look at the numbers of animals that we use. And yes, theoretically, the framework sets out that there should be minimal pain and minimal, you know, um, uh, use of these animals. But actually, the truth is that not everybody follows protocol, that not all of these research projects do the utmost uh, they can to protect um, animals of any kind from unnecessary pain. It's just it's it's just it's very difficult to to follow that strict protocol over and over again. And I've spoken to researchers off the record who said, look, it's not, you know, it it happens. Um so it's something we will cover Amanda and don't think that when we talk about research on on animals that I'm being glib or dismissive about it. Um it's just we've talked about it quite a bit on the program and and um and for us we we want to talk about the science that's being done. Um, but you're right, there is a discussion maybe we need to refresh on on the amount of work and research that's done on, on animals. Column says, I'm not a climate denier, denier. There's definitely global heating happening, but can we please see the benefits of increasing carbon dioxide? Extra heat is a problem, but it's neither a crisis nor inve- inevitably a negative. The globe is greening at a faster rate than ever in history, courtesy of extra carbon dioxide fertilizer in the air. In the Middle Ages, we were heading for a mini ice age and maybe something more serious on the Milankovitch cycles. So by accident, we have held off serious glaciation by adding carbon dioxide to our fragile ecosystem. Glacial melt is a very long-term prospect. Sea rise is mainly just by the heating of upper layer of the ocean. We may have to build taller seawalls or somewhat to move inland. But can you contact Bjorn Lomberg and discuss his solutions from an economic science point of view? Cheers, Colm. I've come across the work of um, Lomborg before, um, and he, he's probably one of the better arguers of uh, of the case. But like, you can't deny that we're talking about serious problems in oceans, ecosystems, coral reefs. You know, saying that we'll just build a wall to, to, to you know, to keep out the water. That's just completely impractical. And what a horrible thing to have to do to all of our coastal areas to try and prevent what's happening. It, it's really not that small a deal. Like we're seeing enormous um, uh, fires. We're seeing extreme weather events. We're seeing flooding um, the idea that this is not that much of a big deal, it's just way off the mark, in my opinion, Colm. Another comment on that solar thing. Um, someone says, Jonathan, surely solar ge- geoengineering will negatively impact all the solar thermal and solar PV technologies which are being deployed by blocking incoming radiation to these collectors. Sounds like fixing one problem could cause another. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, of course, all of our solar um, panels are uh, collecting sunlight. And if we block out the sun, they're going to connect less. I don't know what the effect is of that, but it's a good idea. And to finish up, I love this. Margie on Twitter says, catching up on my Future Proof podcasts, I love that voles still pair up without oxytocin. Always live in hope. We're not just chemicals reacting as they should. Um, you know what? You you, you you run with that, Margie. I think we totally are, but uh, I don't want to ruin your running buzz. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan and Simon Keane, who were producing this week, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. Stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.